so the series Dig In is really about digging into Christ Jesus, about drawing closer to him, and about living a life of faith in him. Part of that for the individual disciple is what we typically call something a quiet time. Now, maybe you're very familiar with that term. Maybe you've never heard that term in your life, or maybe you've heard it once or twice. But the notion is that, that on a daily basis, as disciples of Jesus, we get alone with him. We take our Bibles and we go get in a quiet place. We spend some time studying scripture. We spend some time in prayer. We spend some time sharing our heart with God and listening to God's voice through his word and through our time of prayer. Anybody who's been a disciple for any amount of time will probably tell you one of two. They'll probably tell you both these things. First, that, that when they make that time in their schedule, when they, when they get alone with the Lord, it's really a blessing. It's really a help for them. It's really an opportunity for them to grow in their faith. But if they're honest, they'll also probably tell you that they're not perfect in it. That at times it can actually be a challenge. It can be difficult. And I think both of those things are equally true. So before we get into the teaching time this morning, or as we get into the teaching time this morning, I've asked a couple of friends if they would come and actually just very honestly talk about this topic. I didn't tell them what to say. I didn't tell them what to write down. And it was fascinating to me when I've already had a chance to read their, their stories and what they're going to share with you this morning, that you're going to hear both those things. It's a challenge, and yet it's a blessing. So uh, Beth, we're going to start with you, and then we'll go to Steve here both. Thank you for being willing to come and share with us. Good morning. I was super excited when Tom asked me to do this, and it has brought me to a level of prayer and supplication that I haven't experienced since childbirth. Mine is a story of constant struggle to engage and find joy in a consistent devotional life, marked by wandering, seeking, and just recently finding what sort of works for me. I've always known that I'm called to be in the Word and connecting with God in prayer. My parents did a good job of modeling. They studied their King James Version Bibles with lots of underlining and cross-referencing and a big concordance right next to them. And my youthful attempts to engage with God this way were a failure. And it felt dry. It didn't make sense. So um, part of the problem was that I viewed God as angry and disappointed in me and wondered if I was even really saved. So I gave up for a while and tried life without God and spent a few years confused, selfish, and unhappy. So in my mid-20s, I reconnected with a friend that showed me a joyful life in Christ, and I recommitted my life to God. And this began years of seeking for the fulfilling life of devotion that seemed to never quite stick with me. Um, I tried many different approaches, all the different translations of the Bible, uh, doing the one year, reading the whole Bible in a year, uh, the inductive study, lots of pins and underlining, the journal to journaling in my Bible. Um, and when my children were small, I spent many a day reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I highly recommend it. It's a good good one. Um, I also, during that time, joined a small group, um, and one of the first books that we studied was a book on praying the scriptures for your children, which was a new concept to me, and that has really served me well in times when I didn't know how to pray. And these were all fine approaches, but I still lacked consistency and often felt disconnected from God and joyless. So after decades of shame and struggle, just a few years ago, I decided to confess my friend's frustration to my closest friends in my small group. I worried that they would be really disappointed in me and a bit horrified as I revealed my inability to stay in God's word. I should have known that they would not bat an eye and would pray for me and encourage me. 
This has made all the difference. One of the girls in the group has really pursued me and asked me to join her in doing the same personal study. Just knowing we're following the same plan and we can text each other and say what meant the most to us has just been a really big motivation for me. And currently we're doing an online study called She Reads Truth and I, we get daily emails with scripture to read and a small devotional to read. And I've also found recently that just copying short passages of the Bible in a notebook is a great way for me to absorb the Bible. And praying with a prayer partner or my small group has helped me to develop my personal prayer time as well which still often consists of one-word cries of help or thanks. So my encouragement to any of you who can relate to my story is to find a friend or a group of friends that you can share your struggle with and ask for prayer. I still have days when I miss my quiet time, but I don't feel guilt, and I'm sure that God is pursuing me and that he who started a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Beth, for sharing that. I guess in the past, for me, um, I always viewed digging in as more of a chore, that daily quiet time with God seemed kind of imposing. Um, saw it as a chore like digging in to study for your calculus test, or you don't like your job, but dig in and do it anyway. But my commitment to daily time with God took a turn for the joyful side um, several years back uh, on a three-minute drive. I was taking my dad from his home to the nursing home where he would live out the last nine months of his life, and he was in terrible physical shape, couldn't do anything for himself. And yet on that three-minute drive, he said to me, now I have a whole new chapter of life ahead. He said, my purpose will be to pray for my family, for my friends, for the church, and to encourage the staff of the nursing home. And I thought, he's got every reason in the world to complain, and yet he's thinking about other people with great joy. And what I was observing was the compounded interest of a lifetime of daily connection with Christ, and that's what he modeled. So I thought, I'll have what he's having. I'm going to give this a try and see what happens. So I'm nowhere near as consistent as he was, for sure. And when I miss a morning prayer time, for example, I get cranky and impatient and easily um, irritated. But when I do take time to pray, especially at the beginning of a, like staring down the barrel of a challenging day when the to-do list is a mile long, or when maybe a, diff a difficult confrontation is on the horizon, um, or even when things are good and I might be tempted to do things my own way or to sin, everything changes in the light of quality time spent with the Lord. I found it helpful to go down the list and surrender one thing at a time to his care. Maybe even take that to-do list, crumple it up, and say, Lord, I trust you with this. I don't know how this day is going to unfold. I don't know how we're going to get through this day. But we've been here before. You've been faithful. And I know that when my head hits the pillow tonight, we'll be surprised at the supernatural ease with which things unfolded. And that's where it gets interesting. Because the more I connect with God in that way, the more the focus shifts from my own circumstances 
to what the Lord might be trying to do through my circumstances. Um, it's by his grace and mercy and, and that alone. Over time, grace chips away at my sense of entitlement and begins to allow, even in the most challenging circumstances, a thankful heart to form. On days when I've taken time to pray, when the going gets tough, even in the middle of those situations, I can say, this is it, Lord, I trust you. And that's when the, the thankful heart can come across. And I think that's the freedom I was observing in my dad on that car ride. The focus was not on him. The focus was on the Lord and on others. So is digging in really a chore? It used to be, but now I prefer to see it in a little different way, like maybe think of the Andy Griffith show and Andy and Helen and Barney and Opie are sitting around the dining room table and in walks Aunt B with a big pot roast with onions and potatoes and carrots. She puts it down and what does she say? And so the feast begins. Thank you. Close in prayer and go have lunch. I'm hungry now. <laughs> you would like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> so what would it look like for you and for me to, uh, to dig into Christ on a regular basis? And what does Jesus promise in return? If we make that type of commitment to say, Lord, I really want to draw close to you, uh, how will that impact your life and my life on a daily basis? That's what we want to uh, wrestle with a little bit this morning. We're going to be looking at Colossians Chapter 1, we're actually going to finish chapter 1 this morning, begin chapter 2 next week. We're going to look at the last uh, five verses in the chapter. We're going to begin in verse 24 and read through verse 29 uh, and see what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write and how that can help us think about what it means uh, to personally, individually, as disciples of Jesus, uh, dig in to Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, hear the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the stories that uh, Beth and Steve shared. Uh, they represent our stories, stories of struggle, stories of uh, at times walking with you and being drawn close to you and at other times uh, going our own way. They're stories of sometimes the, the wrongful shame and guilt we feel, perhaps because someone else has spoken that into our life and, and we feel like we can't ever quite live up to things. Or as Steve mentioned, sometimes the, the day is good and, and maybe we're tempted to think we've, we've done it on our own and our problem isn't uh, uh, shame that's standing in our way. The problem standing in our way is pride and a self-assurance that is, is grossly 
over-exaggerated and completely ineffective in allowing us to, to follow you. Father, I imagine that many of us here have had both of those experiences, experiences of shame, guilt, experiences of pride, uh, both of which draw us away from you. So, Lord, this message is for all of us this morning, whether we know you as our Savior or Lord, whether we're first being introduced to you or whether we've been a disciple for a long time, because what you promise is that as we draw near to you, you will speak your truth into our lives. You will minister to us. You will strengthen us. You will correct us. You will actively love us uh, as we engage with you. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us this lesson this morning. You would teach us your word, not my words, uh, that you would give us your truth, that you would not allow me to stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to understand and apply to our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence, uh, and we'll dive right in this morning. Uh, Christ in you, this phrase that Paul uses, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes this morning. Christ in you results in something. It actually results in a willing struggle to grow in his character and in his grace. So as I come to Christ for salvation, and he begins to indwell me, and again, we'll, we'll come to that in a few minutes, something happens. There's a transference that takes place, and my longing, my desire is now to follow Christ, to, to be like him, but that's a struggle. But it's a struggle that I willingly join because I have be, I've come to grips with his grace and his mercy and his salvation in my life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, but I want to go to down, down two side roads Briefly, because there are a couple of verses that I think are important, but we're just not going to spend a lot of time with them. The first is in verses 24 and 25, Paul says something that seems to be very odd. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And then he goes on to talk about being a minister of that church. It would seem at first blush that what Paul is saying is that Jesus did a lot of great stuff on the cross. He did like 97.3% of what we needed for salvation, but there's 2.7 that isn't quite done, but don't worry, I'm filling up what's lacking. That would be a, a awful understanding and misrepresentation of what is in Paul's heart at that particular moment. Paul is actually not talking about the afflictions of Jesus, per se. Paul isn't even talking really about the church in that particular moment. Paul is talking about his own individual experience as, as he calls it, a minister. We may use the term pastor in our day. And what Paul is saying is that Christ's suffering on the cross his work on the cross is complete, but as a minister of Christ, I'm beginning to experience some of the pain that he suffered. As a minister, as a pastor, I'm seeing the world in a different lens now. I'm seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus more and more, and so I'm filling up what is, what is lacking and that my experience may be more full and complete. Paul's actually saying, I'm rejoicing that my experience is taking me to suffering as a minister because it allows me to draw closer to my Lord. You see, Paul's just as concerned about drawing close as he is about us drawing close. So he says, I rejoice as a pastor. And you think about, uh, and this isn't feel sorry for the pastor day by any stretch of the imagination, but I can tell you when you walk in, in a pastor's shoes and your people struggle, you struggle with them. And when they are sorrowful, when their hearts are broken, your heart breaks with them. If they don't, you should go find a different occupation. If you don't have empathy and compassion when people are hurting, you probably shouldn't ever be a pastor. 
But I can tell you after 30 some odd years of experience that there are a lot of times when I cry and it's not because anything happened in my family. Not because there's anything wrong with me, but it's because of a friend, a brother, sister in Christ, somebody who was in the congregation where I'm pastoring who was suffering. And it was breaking my heart just as well. And Paul says, I rejoice in those moments. Why? Because I get to see the world the way Jesus saw the world. That's an amazing gift. So I want to at least mention that because I think uh, some folks might be tempted to, to think that the work on the cross was incomplete. And that's not what Paul is saying. My second side note is in verse 26 where Paul talks about the mystery of the ages. It's been hidden for ages uh, and generations, but now revealed in the states. Like, oh, mystery. Everybody, everybody likes a mystery. What's the answer? What's, the, what's the, the, the puzzle that Paul is trying to solve? Paul's simply saying that when we read the Old Testament, we can discern some things from the prophets about the coming Messiah. But there's no place in the Old Testament where it says, on this day, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. In fact, there's no place in the Old Testament that even mentions the name Jesus as Messiah. We learn a lot about the coming Messiah through the Old Testament, but some of it was still mysterious. But Paul says, not anymore. Not to the extent that we now know that the time was in our generation and the person was Jesus of Nazareth. So as we enter into this, this digging in, we're looking at the Messiah. We're looking at the promised one. Well, real briefly, as, as we've dug in up to this point, what have, we, what have we learned or what have we picked up on? And I, and I want to say primarily, there's two fundamental things that, that we should be getting so far in the series. The first is that Jesus Christ is the all-powerful creator, king, and Lord. He is preeminent over all. The verses that we recited earlier this morning that Bob also recited, uh, I've kind of shrunk those down a little bit. You can see them on the screen. But the notion here is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He, he created everything. He started it. He holds it all together. And now he's Lord over his church and over all of history. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what does somebody do with all that power? Most people that I see that get, get too much power, this looks like too much power for any one person to have, right? They tend to abuse it. They tend to hurt other people. But the other thing we've learned in this study so far is this, that Jesus uses his power, his preeminence for salvation and for grace. And there are a few more verses there from chapter one, which you can go back and review, that through him, he, God reconciled to himself all things, that through the cross, Jesus uh, is able to present us blameless. So what Jesus has done is to use his power in a way of mercy that is unheard of anywhere in the history of mankind. So now the question becomes, if those two things are true, Jesus is preeminent, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he uses all of his power for salvation and for grace and for mercy to bring his people into his kingdom through his death and resurrection, then how does that impact you and me? How do we live our lives lives of faith based, based on those two truths. It's important for a couple of reasons. One is important is because following Jesus in, in this day and age or in any day and age is a struggle individually as well as corporately. It's a challenge to honor Christ in every area of our life. So it's important for us to understand this text so that we can apply it individually so that our growth in Christ can continue. But it's also important because y'all don't live in this room. You don't get to stay here after about 12. If you're here at 1235, 1240, somebody's going to politely tap you on the shoulder and ask you to please leave because we got to, well, the rest of us got to go home and eat lunch. We go into the world. We go into a world that is lost. We go into a world that is dying. We go into a world that is broken and people need to not only hear the gospel of Jesus, but they need to see it in your life and they need to see it in mine. 
So this is an important question of a life of faith because outside of these four walls, there are people that need to see and experience the gospel. So if, we're, if we dig in, if we seek to apply the gospel to our lives, what can we trust God to do? I want to give you four observations out of this text this morning. The first is this in verse 27, that Jesus is present. Look at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, excuse me, are the riches of his glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is in the heart and soul and existence of every disciple. Every believer has the spirit of Jesus Christ living within them. And I call it the linchpin between reconciliation and sanctification. Reconciliation means that your relationship with God was broken. Reconciliation meant that that I had gotten my relationship with God out of whack by going against God's will, by sinning against him, and I couldn't balance the books. I couldn't make it right. I had no inclination to make it right. I had no desire to make it right. And yet God in his power and his mercy sent the Lord Jesus to reconcile so that he could trade his perfection for my imperfection. He could trade his wholeness for my brokenness, and I could become uh, renewed and alive again and have a relationship with God. That's reconciliation. Sanctification is where this simply means learning to apply that truth in my life and growing up as a disciple of Jesus. Think about what you were like when you were three or four years old and what you're like now as maybe you're, maybe you're eight or nine. You're a little bit further down the road than you were when you were three or four. The things you did that were fun when you were three and four aren't, aren't fun and cute anymore when you're eight or nine. Think about if you're 16 or 17 and what you used to do when you were eight or nine. It's changed. The landscape's different. You're doing different things. You have different interests. You're maturing. You're growing up. That's what sanctification is. It's growing up in the faith. And understanding that Christ is in us is the linchpin. It's what holds it all together. Jesus lives in the heart of every believer. How is that possible? Well, I'm going to share with you just a few verses. You don't need to turn to your Bibles, but if you want to study this later on, in John's Gospel, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks about the coming one who's going to indwell every believer, and it's his spirit. So a few verses out of John's, uh, those, those three chapters. Jesus says this to his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans, but I'll come to you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you all that I have said to you. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus promises, and I just gave you three or four of them, there's a whole bunch in those chapters where Jesus says, you're not going to be alone. It's not like I'm going to save you and then go back up to heaven and say, good luck, hope you make it, hope it works out okay. You don't do well on your own. You need my presence in your life, and not just my word on the written page, but you need my spirit to dwell within you, and I'm going to give that to you. I will be present in the life of every disciple. And you can read about the day of Pentecost, we call it in church uh, history, if you look at Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit came and began to dwell in believers. And ever since that, he, he dwells in all disciples. If you believe in Jesus this morning, by faith, the Holy Spirit lives within you. You're not alone. So last September, our daughter Katie had her first baby. And Cindy works in the school district, so she had the summer off. The baby's due in September, and Katie says, Mom, can you come out and spend some time with us? They live in in, uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. Cindy said, well, if somebody has to, I guess I'll do it. So Cindy spent a month on Oahu helping Katie 
get the baby room ready, get, you know, get the paint and the crib and all these things. And I just stayed back here in St. Louis and served as the bank. That was my role in the transaction. So you would call and say, we just need one more thing. And I got it at a garage sale. So I got it at a really good rate. Uh, the garage sales are more expensive in Hawaii than they are uh, in St. Louis or else they threw in some dinners on the side. But here's the thing. Cindy was gone for a month, right? We'd never been apart for a month in our entire lives. About three weeks into the deal, I'm in the office here. Uh, well, the, we are not in here yet. I'm in the office next door uh, in our building. And one of the staff members walks up to me, who's a friend. And she says to me, so how much longer is Cindy going to be gone? And I said, uh, about two weeks. Why? She goes, you're just a lot better when she's here. And she walks off. <laughs> no, no narrative, no explanation like one was needed. But you know what? It's not good for Tom to be by himself. If Tom has to be Tom by himself, he's, he's going to fail. He's, he's not going to be the man that he should be without Cindy, right? You're not following Jesus by yourself. He's actually indwelling you. He's indwelling me, and he promises to be with us. Jesus is present. Secondly, not only is Jesus present, but he reminds us that our hope is not a temporal hope, but it is an eternal hope. Go to that next slide, if you, if you would, please. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What Jesus is saying there is don't let your mind just get so stuck in this day and age that you forget your proper perspective. The proper perspective is an eternal life. We were not saved just for this world, but also for the world to come. We've been created to be in an everlasting relationship with God that has begun now. If you're a disciple of Jesus, your restored relationship with Christ has already begun. But it's only going to get better and better and better as we go into eternity. And part of our struggle can be we get so fixated on this world that we lose that perspective. It's an important perspective. It's crucial that we remember that our hope is not temporal, but rather that it is eternal for a couple of reasons. The first is it, that truth creates a pathway for us through suffering. We think about the dark moments of our lives. We think about those difficult times. We think about how all-consuming they can feel. And how overwhelmed we can, like, this is never going to end. At that moment, remembering the hope of glory, saying this too will pass. This is only for a moment. There is much more awaiting me. I've done a, a recent study on uh, the spirituals that were created during the time of slavery in a very uh, dark and awful part of our national history. And it was interesting to me as I went back and I read, there's actually a, a theologian at St. Louis University uh, that wrote extensively about these spirituals, did a lot of research. And what struck me was how many of these songs speak of heaven. I'm just going to read you a, a little bit of his study, just a tiny little couple paragraphs. Jesus in the spiritual was the suffering servant, savior, teacher, dearest friend of the slaves. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was the crucified Lord of all, but especially of the slaves. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, asked one spiritual, taking personally Jesus' death. But he will lead us into glory. He was the victor over sin and over death, a mighty man, King Emmanuel, freeing believers from physical and spiritual bondage. He called them home. The eschatology of the spiritual emphasized heaven. Roughly 40% of the compiled spirituals dealt with heaven as a primary theme. Heaven was a place of eternal praise and Sabbath rest, free from suffering and slavery. We'll soon be free, one song unashamedly proclaimed. 
Believing slaves embraced heaven as their true home. Heaven was a place of reunion for those who had been separated by slavery. We'll meet forevermore. They would lay down their cross and pick up robes and harps and shoes and have, there would be enough for all of God's children. Heaven was the place where their, all their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs would finally be met. That is an eternal hope. And this morning, if you are suffering, if you are struggling, clearly our suffering can't be compared to those who were enslaved and taken away from their homeland and ripped apart from their families. But if you are suffering in a dark moment this morning as a disciple of Jesus, remember eternity. Remember, it's not just for this world that we've been saved before life everlasting, where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and erase all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the hardship. But I think for most of us, it's a different issue that needs addressing from this particular text. Jesus reminds us of an eternal hope because it challenges our obsession with this world. Most of the people in this room, I dare say, including the person who's speaking right now, are way too obsessed with the things of this life. We base almost all of our decisions exclusively on how it will benefit or help us. We think of the temporal. Rarely do we engage in the eternal when we're making day in and day out decisions. Very rarely do I stop and think, I'm going to take this into eternity with me. Is it worth my time or my effort or my energy? More often I'm asking, well, how will this work out for me? Will I feel better? Will I, will I make more money? Will I, will I earn a better living? Will I be able to do things with my family? And I begin to be obsessed on myself. And Jesus says, Tom, it's not about this world. It's about eternity. And I believe for myself and I believe for many of us, confession of sin here is very important. Acknowledging as we draw near to Christ, you can't help but as you draw near to Jesus to go, there are some priorities in my life that are way out of whack. I need to begin to think of eternity first. Jesus is present. He offers an eternal hope. And thirdly, he also promises the wisdom we need to live out the gospel in our lives. Look at verse 28. This we, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Wisdom is simply the application of Jesus' preeminence to every area of our lives. Paul says, I warn and I teach. In other words, he wants to place our, our, us in a right frame of mind. He wants to offer instruction and encouragement, correction, and refining. The gospel applied to our lives gives us direction for daily lives. We don't say we're going to come to church on Sunday and then we're going to go live void of, uh, of God's word the rest of the week and come back and engage in the sacred again and keep it separate. Rather, we understand the gospel applies to every aspect of our lives, our marriages, our work, our studies, our finances, our reputation. The list goes on and on. Every part of that is under the lordship of Jesus and under the control of his gospel. So knowing I was going to preach a sermon, I kept a running tab this last week of how many times I had a conversation with somebody, whether I went to them or they came to me. And, and it was about 50, maybe, maybe 55, 45. Uh, but, but all the conversations, I, I would mark it down whenever it was, hey, what do you think as a disciple of Jesus I should do here? Or, or what do you think in this scenario? How, how do you think I ought to apply the gospel there? And, and part of it was me asking, and part of it was somebody else asking. And I kept track, 22 different conversations in the last week, about three a day on average, where I was asking someone or somebody else was saying, what do you do with this? As a, as a Christian, how do you handle this situation? And brothers and sisters, that's why we dig into Christ, because he gives us that wisdom. 
We're going to see in the rest of the book, especially in chapter 3, godly wisdom given to us sentence after sentence after sentence about the very practical issues of our day in and day out lives. Jesus is not only present, not only eternal hope, but he understands that, that from the moment of conversion until the day when we see him, there's a journey to be had. And it's fraught with all kinds of dangers as well as all kinds of opportunities. And so he promises to give us all wisdom that we could follow him. And then fourthly and finally, all of this leads, according to verse 28, to a maturity of faith. If you look at verse 28, it's him we proclaim. Warning, uh, uh, but, 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 yet warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Think about how you would define that. If somebody said to you, what does it mean to be mature in Christ? I thought about that this week. I thought in essence, what it means is I'm going to take on the character of Jesus in, in my life, in every aspect of my life. So whether it's my marriage, my work, my job, whatever, whatever the case may be, I'm, I want the character of Christ to be in control of my life. Well, then I started thinking, well, what are some of the benchmarks of the character of Jesus? Now, I'm going to give you a very short list, right? And if you took this list and built on it, you could probably add, I don't know, 70, 80, 100 more things to it. But these are just some of the things that I thought of off the top of my head, the character of Jesus that I'd like to see in my life. The first is he had faith in every situation and every moment. Think about the night before he went to the cross. He said, Father, if it's possible, let's go a different direction but not my will be done, but yours. Think of the faith it took for him to place his life in his father's hands as he went to the cross. Well, one of the reasons he was able to do that was because another part of his character is an unending love for the father and prioritizing time with his father. Read John's gospel in particular about what Jesus says about his relationship with his father. He says, I and the father are one. There isn't a shred of light between me and my father. I've come only to do the will of my Father. And he was always going off to a quiet place where he's spending time in prayer with his Father. And I think that's the character I want in my life. I, I want to be one with the will of God in my life. I want to be spending time with him so that I can see that clearly and know how to follow him. Hatred of evil and its destructive power. I don't mean uh, uh, an evil that wants to harm others. I mean, a, a, or excuse me, a hatred that wants to harm others, but rather a, a pure anger at that which does harm others. I wish I would get mad at myself more for the things I do that hurt other people. The fact that I, I, I don't care that I hurt people sometimes shows me how far I have to go in getting the character of Christ deep into my heart and my soul. Compassion for the sick and the lonely, giving himself for a lost and dying world. These are just a few of the aspects of the character of Jesus where Paul says we want to present everyone mature in Christ to be mature in these things. Paul wants these things for himself, but he also wants them for every disciple. That's why digging in is so absolutely crucial. That's why Paul is writing the letter in the first place, because he knows that the journey in following Christ has many different twists and turns. And the closer we draw to Christ, the more we dig into him, the more he will provide his presence in our life the more we will think as he thought, the more we will follow his will, the more godly wisdom we will have to apply, and that maturity of faith will keep us safe even in the storms of life. So how do we begin? Because we're just beginning, for we've got five more weeks to flesh this out. How do we begin the application? Just give you a couple things here and we'll wrap up. The first is this. I think Stephen Beth's words this morning were very encouraging and challenging for all of us. They, they challenge us to draw near 
to our Father through prayer and the Word. And I want to encourage everybody to think about that and what it would look like. Where would it fit in your schedule? How can you set aside time? I know many of you already do this. You have this discipline in your life. It's a joy and it's ongoing. But I was talking to a friend after the first service who's been a Christian a long, long time. uh, And we were sharing sometimes about how difficult it can be, how, how dry our lives can become spiritually. So we promised to pray for each other. And I appreciate Steve and Beth and just the encouragement and the challenge. And I want you to take that to heart. That what would it mean for me to spend time with my father daily? The second thing is we want you to know that, that help's coming next week. Uh, we understand that this is new to some people. There are people that are just uh, considering what it means to be a believer in Christ. Uh, others are relatively new in their faith, so they're not sure where to begin. So when you leave church next Sunday, and it's for everybody, anybody can have it, Uh, As you go out, we're going to have a little Bible study that takes you through the rest of the Lenten season uh, for about four weeks leading up to to Easter. And it's just a little tiny daily devotional with literally a a couple of verses, uh, a small thought on them, and then some things that that hopefully will draw to your mind uh, for you to pray. But if you've never had a Bible study before, or if you're in between, you're not sure what to do, grab one of those next Sunday. I think it will be a help for you. So those two things are important, but ultimately I've said all that because I wanted to say this you got to remember Dickie Fox, right? Everybody knows that, right? Now, Josh, I'm a little concerned that you're looking at me quizzically because you're a movie guy like me, right? Anybody remember who Dickie Fox was? It, what, what day is today? So doesn't a date movie have to work into the sermon somewhere? Is that ringing any bells on anybody? Jerry Maguire, okay? The, the quintessential date movie of 1996. That's going way back, all right? Jerry Maguire is a character, a fictitious character, who's a sports agent, and he's living for the money, and he's living for the moment, and he's doing quite well, thank you very much, but he's empty inside, and he hates himself, and he remembers his mentor, Dickie Fox, and if you've seen the movie, you know there are three different times where this little old guy is sitting behind a desk, and he's got a kind of a high-pitched voice, and he'll give one gem of truth, right, and, and the first one is, you know, business is all about relationships. Well, Tom Cruise, the plays this character, Jerry Maguire, says, bolt up in bed one night. He goes, I forgot all about it. It's what Dickie Fox, and he writes this paper out and how he's going to completely change the way he does business and how he's really going to care for people and love people. And then he makes a whole bunch of copies of it and he hands it out and he promptly gets fired. <laughs> right? And the rest of his journey from that moment until the happy ending where they kiss and hold hands and walk off into the sunset, because it's a date movie, so it has to end that way, right? From there to there, there's a lot of bumps and bruises. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of moments where it feels like utter failure and despair. There are other moments where there, there's, a, there's a, a brief glimpse of joy, and, and maybe this is going to go in a good direction, but, but there's a lot of question marks all the way through. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus... Until the moment you close your eyes and you open up and go, he's standing right there. I must have just got hit by a bus. Right? I'm in heaven now. The in-between, all kinds of bumps and bruises, all kinds of twists and turns, moments of great joy, moments of deep, dark sorrow. How will you walk that journey? Jesus says, as Aunt B says, I love that, dig in. There's a lot here for you to feed you and nurture your soul that you may be found faithful and trusting and following me. Let's pray together. Father, I think of the the movie and and Dickie Fox changed Jerry Maguire's life 
but it wasn't always easy. It didn't always feel good. It was a huge challenge for him to, to see it through to the end, so to speak. And Father, I, I think of the moment when uh, I came to faith, and I think about how many years ago that was, and I think about if by your will I have a few more to go, and I think about the twists and the turns and the bumps in the road, places where I've been a complete failure sinned against you in the places where I've experienced your presence and joy. So I, and I know I have so many brothers and sisters in this room that are on that same journey. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for reminding us that Jesus is always present. He hasn't left us. He's abiding in us. Father, thank you for reminding us that it's not just about this world. That is the eternity. But while we are in this world, you promise to give us your wisdom that we may be mature in you. <clears throat> Father, give us a passion and a desire to know you and to love the one who has first loved us for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.